I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, is social media still a force for good? Jimmy Wales is the founder of Wikipedia, a.k.a. the free encyclopedia that anyone can edit. It celebrates its 20th anniversary on January the 15th, and it does so as the biggest and most read reference work ever. Wikipedia hosts more than 55 million articles in hundreds of languages, all written by volunteers. And yet it's an oddity among digital platforms. It uses vast network effects to grow and share a knowledge base on pretty much, well, anything you might want to ask about. Yet it defies the Silicon Valley recipe for success. The site has no shareholders, it's generated no billionaires, and it sells no advertising. So how does the wiki machine really work? And how much can we rely on what we read there? Jimmy Wales founded the all-knowing internet giant, so what does he make of a much-searched subject, recent moves by other media giants to silence the newly impeached President Donald Trump? We'll dive into that and a lot more. Jimmy Wales, welcome to The Economist Asks. Mm, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I suspect everyone listening will have read at least one Wikipedia article, if not several thousand or tens of thousands in their lives, but not everyone will know how it works. So give us a quick recap, if you could, of how the site gets written and what are the sort of guiding principles that you've had for that over the years? Sure, yeah. So we have a community of uh, thousands and thousands of volunteer editors who work together collaboratively on the site to produce all the entries. Uh, There's a whole complicated social structure and system to it all, including the administrators who are elected from within the community, including things like uh, wiki projects, which are topic-based groups of people who take a look at, I don't know, there might be wiki project House of Lords. They'll make sure that all of the entries on the House of Lords will have a a decent biography of everyone there and so forth. So that's the the kind of model is very much uh, that it is based around people. Um, What's the balance then between using real human beings to check source material in the more automated or bot world, which people have a lot of questions about. It's basically 100% humans. There are a few people who have written bots to do some fairly mechanical things, but the bots are very restricted. So the kinds of things I'm talking about would be someone may run a spell checking bot, but even that a human oversees each edit uh, that that gets made, but it's pretty limited. And and it really is in terms of the actual content really left to the judgment of human beings. Wikipedia is celebrating 20 years. How has it changed since you created it? And what have been the biggest challenges to that kind of foundational model of spreading true information and using 100% humans uh, behind that? 
perhaps the most surprising thing is how little it's changed uh, over the years, that we've always had the vision of a free encyclopedia. We've always been community driven. Obviously, from day one, when the only words on the site were me typing hello world to get started to today with millions and millions of entries, that has changed. You know, over the years, we've also really tightened up a lot of the editorial standards as we get bigger and more mature, it becomes possible to do more things uh, and, and make sure that things are uh, as good as they possibly can be. One thing that I've noticed just as a frequent user that has changed or rather grown is, is the size of the appeals and the insistence of the appeals that we make financial contributions for using it. It's <laughs> thought of as a free service. And mm. I wonder if you find there's any tension between that and the need to bring in contributions, donations, and quite quite how much of my screen should be filled up with that? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We Our model is, is unique. You know, we have millions of people who donate every year. We're really happy with that model. It means we're not beholden to any major donors. You know, sometimes people say to me, oh, why don't you just get Google and Facebook to pay for it? And I think maybe after... A few years of a bit of backlash against big tech. Maybe they're happy that we're so independent, and and so it's important. And also, it helps us stay focused on the readers to say, look, uh, you know, we have to serve the interests of readers because they're the one paying the bills. So we don't do things like clickbait headlines and algorithmic addiction and outrage uh, because we know no one would donate money for that, right? Maybe that's a good way to get page views, but. It doesn't work to really get people to say, wow, this is meaningful. I should I should chip in. And having a steady supply of editors and new editors, replenishment is vital for Wikipedia's culture and also for its long term survival. How is that going? And, and who do you look for as a Wikipedia editor? Basically, the, the most important thing is a thoughtful person, kind and clever and interested in ideas and not combative, because that's not really what we're all about. And we are also these days particularly focused on trying to increase the diversity of the community. We want more uh, women editing. We want more people from different types of backgrounds. You know, we know that it's not great if Wikipedia is mostly written by tech geek men. That means there's huge swaths of human knowledge that... Uh, tech geek men don't pay much attention to and that do need attention. So, you know, in addition to kind and clever, we also want diverse backgrounds. Let's turn to credibility of online information, which is a a subject which takes us down a lot of interesting and some troubling tributaries at the moment. I mean, how authoritative would you say Wikipedia was as a source of information? I maybe serve up to you a, a, a quote that is used in the Economist piece this this week, um, and it is the former president of the American Library Association who says a professor <laughs> who encourage I think you know it right mm-hmm. and the, a professor who encourages the use of Wikipedia is the intellectual equivalent of a dietitian recommending a steady diet of Big Macs with everything. <laughs> very amusing, very amusing quote. Well. I would say that the academic reputation of Wikipedia has definitely increased uh, over time. I'm not sure when that quote was from, but I think about a decade ago or something like that. And, uh, you know, I think we can now look at a really fundamentally changed landscape of information, which is not so much that Wikipedia has gotten better, although it has, but that a lot of other things have gotten much, much worse. So we have seen a rise of fake news websites. We've seen a rise of maybe not quite fake news, but highly propagandistic 
purported news outlets that are basically pushing agendas on a constant basis. And, you know, in that environment, having uh, a place where the Wikipedians are quite firm and quite fierce about our rather old-fashioned ideas about what counts as a quality source, about not just allowing any random thought that pops in someone's head come onto the site. We show off quite favorably in that context. So, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting change in the ecosystem. How much should we take at face value what we read on Wikipedia? And I, I raise that question because there is also a disclaimer, I think, that Wikipedia is not a reliable source, not in the sense of being overall unreliable, but that you're kind of a bit, you have a bit of small print, don't you? Yeah, well, I mean, for Wikipedia, you know, you, you couldn't write a Wikipedia article and say, my source is Wikipedia, that's a bit nonsense, right? <laughs> we depend on other sources, and we are an open system, so errors can be there, and sometimes persist longer than we would like. But in general, I think Wikipedia is pretty good, and I think for most uses, it's completely normal, everyone is using it. What I always say to people is, look, if you see where the Wikipedians have written, you know, the neutrality of this article has been disputed, that's a famous line, or the following section doesn't cite any sources, okay, take that seriously. We're warning you, like, hey, this is not done. This is not really something that you can count on. Uh, you know, Wikipedia once married me off to Boris Johnson for a brief and inglorious period. <laughs> I hope it was very brief. <laughs> but I think it was an affair, and I thought, well... I'm quite forgetful, but I'm not forgetful <laughs> in my old age. Oh, and now, what about you? You've touched on a, a phrase that resonates with me because we've, I think you and I have had discussions about it over the years, which was what is a quality source? Mm. And where does uh, this often leads a bit to a question of where one is positioned ideologically, mm. politically, or just the kind of disposition that one has in life and I think we, we disagreed once I think when you, mm. you you got into a bit of a row about the Daily Mail in Britain whether mm. you would regard it as a quality source and I said to someone who'd worked in British media in lots of different titles you don't always have to like the editorial line of a news organisation to accept more often than not that it's factually correct you just disagree with the way that they're coming at things and I think mm. you took a different view I mean where, where did you land on that in the end? Well, I mean, I think uh, the, the Daily Mail is still considered to be not ideal as a source. There's no absolute ban on using it, but it's generally preferred to to find something better. And I think most people would immediately understand why that would be. So, uh, But it does depend on the context. So if you see a screaming headline in the mail about immigrants uh, or whatever, sort of the kinds of things they bang on about, you'd say, I'm, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt and realize that there's probably a more even-handed thoughtful source on the same news event that is probably better to use. At the same time, the mail, you know, they do journalism occasionally, and uh, they sometimes break important stories, and it would be inappropriate to say you can never link to them, even if they've done something quite good. But, you know, the, the truth is there are stories uh, in the mail that are just false, and I can give examples that are still online today. And that's problematic. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is it does, you know, Daily Mail can look after itself, uh, yeah. but I'm interested in the extent to which our preferences then can shade. There are plenty sure. of other places that have posted things which may or may not be knowingly fake news, and but you would still use them judiciously in America, uh, for our American listeners, you know, sort of not to get into the weeds of UK media, but you would use them judiciously as a source. And I wonder whether you shouldn't err more on that side than the 
the kind of I like this and I don't like this newspaper? Well, no, I mean, I, I think it's it's one principle that's very, very important is to say just because I disagree with the broad ideological stance of this outlet, then I won't, you know, allow it to use a source. And, and by the way, it's not me. It's, it's a community decision. But that would be wrong. And, and that's something that we do talk about and we do try to avoid. It's really about sort of really kind of old-fashioned notions about quality. Um, and, and that does tend, whether on the left or on the right, it does tend to be a bit of a, a mark against uh, tabloidy sources. You know, they might be more left-wing, but they're also a bit inflammatory and, and so on. So it shouldn't be about that. It should be about, okay, is it a serious source? Do they have proper journalistic procedures in place? So never minding, you know, the mail, we are in a world now where there are purported news outlets that are completely at odds over even the most basic facts. And that's, you know, one of the, the biggest social issues we have today is that kind of bifurcation of people into completely different universes of understanding. That's really not good. So let's uh, let's turn to that. I mean, what have you learned from your own experience at Wikipedia, but also rubbing shoulders and being in that, that world of social media platforms and online debates about what constitutes fact? What do you think could be done to prevent the spread of the most poisonous and persistent fake news? Mm. Well, I mean, I think there, there's so many different levels and so many different aspects of this. And I don't know how, as a society, we deal with that other than the, I think we're slowly beginning to, I think, coming to terms with the issue of disinformation. And if we think about the platforms like Twitter and Facebook, it's a tough problem for them. It's really hard. I mean, I, I have a lot of criticisms about how they've handled it, but I also think we should acknowledge, you know, when you set yourself up as here's a little box, post your thoughts to the world, you're going to get a lot of nonsense. That's the way people are, and, and that's fine. But I make the distinction between the stereotype of the, the crazy racist uncle, right? So you've got a crazy racist uncle who posts obnoxious opinions on Facebook. And I think, you know what, that's not really a huge social problem. And that's not Facebook's problem. That's your family problem, you know, and a lot of people have that kind of situation in their life where they know somebody who's really like not okay. Where I do have a problem though, is when the company's algorithms start to pick up that type of content and promote it because they notice, you know, when somebody posts an obnoxious comment, it gets a lot of other comments. It gets a lot of pages. It gets a lot of response. It's engagement. And therefore people stay on the site longer and they see more ads. That's a real problem. Let's cut to one of the, the most important stories that we're dealing with at the moment and where that's led us, and uh, that is, of course, Donald Trump. And after those terrible scenes in Washington recently, Twitter removed him. That obviously has divided opinion strongly. Where do you fall on that? <laughs> if I were Twitter, I would have banned him years ago. But then again, I probably, you know, I'm not a billionaire and maybe <laughs> that would have been a very bad business decision for them. But we're in a bad spot, I mean, because, you know, it makes him into a bit of a martyr. Uh, it kind of reinforces a view that people have that, that, I mean, oddly enough, it's a sort of strange. I, I've been reading a lot of right wing things. You know, it's like the communists in charge of Twitter. I'm like, well, that's a very odd world where we're calling billionaires communists. But OK, right. It's very, very strange. But people are convinced that it's ideological, that they're doing it because they disagree with Donald Trump politically. When it's actually quite clear at some point, his rhetoric caused violence and seemed likely to cause more violence. And they also don't want to allow that to happen on their platform. So they're in a tough spot. 
it's the culmination of a sort of years-long neglect of the issue, even as they've slowly begun to think harder and make some progress in thinking about moderation. They haven't gotten to any really consistent long-term answers yet. You seem to be suggesting that the reason for not doing something about it a long time ago is essentially a business reason. And you could you could say it's rather cynical, isn't it? Because the company was built and people became very, very rich indeed. I mean, you're suggesting in case of someone like Jack Dorsey that they let it run while they built this huge, very, very profitable business and are now slightly saying, oh, you know, that mm. time we did something there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it looks that way to many people. I mean, I, what I would say is, again, I'm, I am more sympathetic than that simple criticism might sound because it's one thing to say he's a character, he's a TV personality and he's got a character he plays and people seem to enjoy it and it's not really causing any harm. And then he becomes president and it's like, mm, this isn't great, but also he's the president. And so therefore you, you want to think about what does it mean to let political leaders have an audience directly to the public? That sounds important as well. So it's really, really hard. And then you get to a point where actually it's getting quite ugly. So now you box yourself in a corner. So that's the sympathetic way of putting that, that same chain of events. And the more cynical way is to say, oh, wow, this is great. Look at this. Look at the amount of engagement. This guy, when he tweets, it's in every newspaper in the world. We get linked to from everywhere. We're the topic of conversation because this guy is, is really being outrageous on our platform. And wow, look at all the money we're making. But would I be right in thinking that you were probably a bit more on the liberal, this is the price you pay for free expression and that it's an acceptable price for all the benefit you get from it. It's a, a subject we've been tangling with in our own coverage and indeed our editorial line and that you're perhaps feeling a bit now that you might want to row back from that. Well, no, I mean, so I'm, I'm fundamentally a massive First Amendment advocate. Um, I think that it's really, really important that we have freedom of expression and that governments shouldn't intervene. But my take on that, again, is really quite classical liberal uh, take, which is that what this means is that Twitter should not be forced to carry the speech that they don't agree with. Uh, that is their First Amendment right. Uh, and, and no one has a First Amendment right to publish something on someone else's property. The question gets a little more complicated, really, when we think about Amazon and Parler, because Amazon was just providing infrastructure that's a little bit different from a social platform with advertisers where you can legitimately say, as a magazine might, hey, we're not going to print this because our customers would be really offended by this. I mean, I guess this brings us to, to that argument about the extent to, to which these platforms are effectively publishers. Uh, or not, which they, of course, they, they, they would deny because it becomes much more of a headache for them if they are. But if you're able to remove Donald Trump's tweets... It seems to me you're acting as a publisher, aren't you? You're saying, this is something I am not going to surface. I mean, whatever kind of nice Silicon Valley language you use, you're saying I'm not going to publish it. This is what's really important about Section 230 is it eliminates that stark distinction. So Section 230 is uh, a provision in the law that says everyone who is a speaker on the Internet, every user of a service is responsible for their own speech. No one else is responsible for it. And that's been important because it means that platforms can can ban people for harassment and things like that without, therefore, becoming responsible for everything on the platform. There's also the whole other area, which I think is going to become 
very fraught, which if you look at something like parlor, I think it's parlay in Europe, parlor uh, in America, that's the, the app that drew a lot of Trump supporters and billed itself as the free speech social network. Uh, Amazon, Apple, Google uh, cut it off. Again, was that the right thing to do? You know, where should you stop and say, well, I'm sorry, that has nothing to do with us? Or we think this is potentially toxic. Mm. It is to do with us. So, I mean, one of the things I would say is, and this is a completely different conversation to the one we were having earlier, but it actually has a certain parallel, which is, I think it would be, and I'm not talking about regulation or law. I'm just saying what I think companies should do. It would be one thing to say, we disagree with the political speech that's going on on Parler. Therefore, we're going to cut it off because we don't like those views. But having looked at Parler, uh, having looked at a few other places that are still up and running, what you found was active calls for violence, active calls that very closely mapped and described what actually happened. So that you could say, even without being an FBI investigator, this was violent activity being planned on these platforms, an actual conspiracy to do something bad, and they weren't doing anything about it, and they had not responded to uh, complaints. And so to me, that puts it in a different category where you say, you know what, if we are providing service to people who are actively promoting violence, that's a problem. We shouldn't do that, as opposed to, you know, we're providing a platform to people who have political views that we disagree with. Okay, then that's different. And of course, the original call from Donald Trump was made in person in a speech, wasn't it? It was carried on TV networks or any form of audio, any form of print uh, as well. So it is possible that we are looking to the, the, the platforms here as being the sort of original sin, whereas actually the original sin is, is making that speech. Uh, yes, yes. So, I mean, definitely. I mean, I think uh, we should be careful as we do focus. And I think we should as, as an industry or as citizens of the world, we should say, okay, wow, how, how do we grapple with this new technology and some of the potential downsides of it? But at the same time, in this case, we should absolutely lay the blame 100% at the feet of Donald Trump to say he, he wound people up. He, he got people excited. He suggested and hinted. I mean, Rudy Giuliani said his bit about combat. Uh, that kind of language, you know, people were hearing that and they were taking it very seriously. And, uh, and we're probably quite fortunate that it was no worse than it was. I'm thinking back over your 20 years at Wikipedia, but also being a, one of a sort of foundational generation of, of people using technology and information in a, in a different way. And your name could conceivably be spoken of in, in this, the same sort of breath as a Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, even Elon Musk. I think your space ambitions are possibly a little more limited. <laughs> um, do you think you know, of yourself as having created a tech giant with Wikipedia? Um I don't know, tech giant. I mean, it is, obviously, in certain ways, uh, but certainly as an organization, we're tiny compared to, to them and from a financial perspective. Well, I'm not as grandiose, usually, as someone like Elon Musk. Uh, on the other hand, I think my work will be remembered long past when Elon Musk is long and forgotten. So uh, maybe, I, uh, maybe I'm a bit grandiose in that, in that sense. Do you think that the tech giants, and particularly in this space we're talking about, information and technology have stood for a good culture? I mean, I think so in general. Obviously, we're, we're, we're talking today about a lot of the, the recent problems uh, that have arisen and a lot of trouble. There is this wonderful thing about, for example, Facebook. Like I 
all of my friends from when I was a teenager, I've reconnected with on Facebook and I, you know, we keep up with each other and we chat sometimes and I see pictures of them and their kids and all that. And it's actually quite wonderful. So Facebook, Facebook and specifically the vision of Mark Zuckerberg, you think is still more of a force for good than harm in your view? Because I think a number of people have changed their mind about that in the last few years. It's a good question. I do think they have um, you know, the, a few years ago, I, I thought it was completely fine and people had this and that complaint. Then I do think that there is a lot of harm, uh, a lot of harm uh, by algorithmically promoting dissension, anger, disinformation, misinformation. Uh, it's led a lot of people to quite a dark place. And uh, and that's not OK. So, yeah, not good. We often ask people what they've been up to in these lockdown periods, and we're not none of us are travelling around so much, and more time on the wretched laptop. Uh, <laughs> I see you've cre- you've created a werewolf tournament. What is werewolf? I now sound like one of those aunties or uncles. Who, <laughs> what what is this newfangled werewolf thing? Yeah, so werewolf is a is a, a party game uh, that's very popular in tech circles and. Uh, it, it, I, I've been working on it. I haven't actually launched it yet, uh, but it will be at uh, werewolfnight.com. But it's basically a, it's it's a silly kind of game, and ha- you know some people are werewolves and some are villagers, and then you go to sleep and and you choose who to kill. And anyway, it's all a silly thing. But it's a it's it's really big in tech circles for some unknown reasons. It's just a very geeky game. And were it to be applied to the real world, who would you give the silver bullet to? <laughs> oh, it's a ruthless game. It's a ruthless game. It could be anybody. It might be you. <laughs> they didn't quite get an answer on that one. <laughs> I see you're talking to us from what looks like a an attic. A lot of us are uh, having this combination of home and work. Uh, I think you have some experience of homeschooling, uh, some, some or at least some of your children. Uh, have you got any advice for listeners in places where schools are? closed and how did it work out for y'all yeah yeah well my my 20 year old daughter is um at university university of miami she's a violinist it's uh, it's great so the main things you know that i would say is that the experience of school and sort of the rigidity of school is not for the benefit of children but for the benefit of the institution i don't mean that in a really horrible angry way but it's like You've got a bunch of kids. You've got to keep them organized. You've got to do this, 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 and this order. And if your kids aren't like that at home because they kind of are a little more loosey-goosey and relaxed, you know what? That's all right. Let them follow their interests. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. But just, you know, keep after them to, to, to always be learning something. Loosey-goosey. Loosey-goosey education. <laughs> and I suppose the occasional resort to Wikipedia. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Wells, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And, of course, we'd love to know what you think. You're the regular users. Does Wikipedia thrill or disappoint you? Are you a tech optimist or more on the Eeyore side of that argument, given recent events? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Thank you. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.